Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and Love the One You're With from Fillmore East in June 1970. And that's because I've got Henry Diltz here today to talk about the new CSNY photographic book, Love the One You're With. And if you're into CSNY in any shape or form, this is a must buy. Henry, uh, one of the greatest photographers of his generation, a musician in his own right, and friend of the band 
So in this podcast interview with Henry, we get a real inside view into the world of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and much more. So let's hear my chat with Henry. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Hello, Jason. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me. Sure. I have to say, Henry, um, looking through the new um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young um, book, Love the One You With, the quote from Graham Nash in his foreword, it was just like hanging out with a friend, really resonated. Very different to some of the stage shots that many photographers do. They're much more natural. It takes you back into each photo. Yeah. Well, you know, that's all I know to do, really. <laughs> I wasn't a photographer. I was a musician. I was in a folk group performing and for five years, you know, back and forth in the U.S., recording and singing and all that. And um, one day leaving a city in Michigan after we'd done a show the night before at a college, as we were pulling out of town, we spotted a secondhand store. And, you know, you have to pull in and look and see what's in there. So we pulled in and um, right inside the door was a table full of secondhand cameras. And the guy right in front of me in my group, Cyrus Fariar, as he walked by, he just reached down and grabbed one. He said, oh, a camera. I need one. And I was behind him. And without even thinking about it, I just reflex action. I said, oh, me too. You know, I grabbed one. I'd never been thinking about getting a camera. <laughs> Not at all. It was just a reflex action. And I grabbed one. And three of us bought cameras. And then the guy Cyrus in the group, he said he knew about them. And, and he said, let's pull into the next uh, drugstore and I'll buy film for everybody. He gave us all a box of film. And I said, well, Okay, I put the film in. How do you what are you how do you set these numbers? He said, Well, look on the box, the film box, a yellow Kodak film box. It's at sunlight, 250 at eight. So I, I said, okay, 250 at eight, let's go out in the sun. And so that was my school, that film box, you know. And uh, we took photos of each other for the next couple of weeks on the way home to LA. So we each had a handful of film that we got developed. And I was surprised to, when it came back from the lab to see they were little slides, little transparencies. You know, you could hold them up and look. I said, wow, look at that. You know, I didn't know what the pictures would even look like. And I said, well, then let's uh, have a slideshow. Invite all of our friends and uh, all our hippie friends. And we had a slideshow. And that is when I sort of said, wow, you know, this is amazing. I These eight feet wide, glowing in the dark, you know, these adventures that we had had in the past two weeks. And I said, this is amazing. I've got to take more of these so we can have more slideshows. It was kind of a social event. It was fun, you know. And that's what started me out, taking pictures of, of all my friends in Laurel Canyon. And they were all musicians, you know, Stephen Stills and Mama Cass, David Crosby, all these people uh, <laughs> that I hung out with because I was a musician. And when you are, most of your friends are musicians. And then one by one, these people in Laurel Canyon became famous. So that was a good thing for me. <laughs> it was uh, Buffalo Springfield. That was the first photos that you took that you were actually paid for. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. I bumped into Stephen Sills one afternoon up in one day, or it was early in the day, whatever time of day. I bumped into him and he said, he said, hey, Henry, the Buffalo Springville is going to the beach to a, a folk club in Redondo Beach tomorrow. Would you like to come along? You know, and I thought, yeah, I would like to come along to go down on the beach. 
and photograph people while they're doing their sound check, which is what I did. I didn't go into the club. And um, after about a half hour, I walked back to the club and I was busy photographing a big mural on the back of the club. And I had it all framed up because it was very colorful. And I like to have colorful pictures in my now my slideshows didn't have, you know, it had my friends. But no, I mean, they weren't music photos, except there were some musicians in there. But I would look for colorful things, interesting, funny things, you know, to get a reaction from my friends. Said, well, that's a big, colorful, the whole building is painted with this mural. And just as I was focusing on it, the back door opened and these guys walked out right next to the mural. And I said, hey, you guys, just stand there in front of that, if you would, for a minute so I could show how big it is. And I didn't think anything of it. I mean, I took a whole roll of film because they started acting up and making faces. And and then a week later, a magazine called and said, uh, we hear you have a picture of the Buffalo Springfield. We'd, we'd like to run it and we'll pay you $100. And that was, wow, $100. I hadn't made a penny yet, you know, from taking a picture. <laughs> so that was my first sort of paying gig. Yeah. It doesn't seem that long afterwards when, um, was it Mama Cass that led you to taking photos of the Hollies? Because I, I know that the UK cover of For Certain Because, that's your work, isn't it? Yeah, that was also the first year I got a camera, 66, I took that picture. Early on, a friend of mine, Eric Jacobson, who produced The Love and Spoonful, and he was a real good friend of mine from the folk music days and a fellow folk singer. And he said, Henry, I hear you want to become a photographer. Why don't you fly back to New York for the summer? Because the guys, the Spoonful, need a lot of photos. And he just had a big hit with Do You Believe in Magic, right? And he said, we'll pay for all your expenses and, you know, you'll learn to be a photographer. So while I was there that summer, uh, the phone rang in the lead lead guitarist house, Sol Yanofsky, And it was Mama Cash. She said, are you guys going to be there for a little while? I'd like to bring some friends by. Yeah. Mama Cash was an earth mother. She would meet these English boys on a TV show, first time in America type of thing, you know. And she'd say, oh, you don't know anybody. Let me let me take you around and introduce you. Let me call some friends. Let me, you know. So she came by a short time later with the Hollies. And uh, it was great. We, we spent the afternoon drinking margaritas and telling road stories and laughing. And, and then Graham said, oh, Henry, you're a photographer we need some new pictures. Could we come around tomorrow? And so they came around the next day. And so my first group was the Buffalo Springfield. Then it was the Love and Spoonful and then the Hollies all kind of at the same time. And to complete that circle, there's a great quote of David Crosby's where he talks about the modern folk quartet, your group, and just loving the harmonies. I mean, so a big admirer. Yeah, he was. And Stephen Stills as well. The first year we were traveling around the country, we would play a jazz club in New York called the Village Gate, because we were sophisticated folk music. We wore suits and we sang four-part harmony, kind of like the four freshmen, you know, sing folk music. And often we opened for jazz musicians um, because it was it was sophisticated chords, you know. And Stephen, in 63, we were playing there and Stephen was a real young boy singing in a coffee house down the road. And uh, he came to hear us and he would sit on the edge of the stage and listen to our harmonies. You know, the harmonies were really, really good, really interesting. And um, I think I met Stephen first. That was 63, I believe. Then I met David on the road somewhere where he was singing. 
our paths crossed, you know, somewhere in 64. And then 66 was Graham. So, yeah, so I knew these guys, you know, years before they ever became Crosby, Sills, and Nash. It's funny, you know, I, I, I think about it. I think, well, wow, I've photographed these guys for half my life. <laughs> but then I really start doing the math, and it turns out it's two-thirds of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Just to interject on, on the modern folk quartet, I mean, famously, you recorded with Phil Spector for the, the single, This Could Be The Night, and there is a bit of a Beach Boys sound to it. There was. Yeah, there was. You know, Phil Spector was in town here and we were playing all the clubs and he'd come in and see us. And he felt that he that he wanted to do a sort of the new folk rock sound. And so we arranged to rehearse with him over a summer. We'd go up to his house, you know, three, four days a week and sit around and play songs and rehearse. He played the piano and sing, you sing this. He was kind of grooming us. And then one day he said, I have a song for you. It was called This Could Be the Night by Harry Nielsen. And we went in and we recorded that with the wall of sound. First day we did the track. The second day we did the vocal. And that afternoon when we were in there finishing up the vocals, we looked in the control room and there was Brian Wilson wow. sitting there with his robe and slippers, you know, and he was way overweight, kind of sitting there during that period of time. And he was our hero. You know, we... We would sing Beach Boy songs on the way to a gig to warm up. You know, we go round, round, get around, I get around. So, and it was amazing. Wow, we thought we've made it. Brian Wilson is, and he was listening to our song over and over. We didn't even go in there. We didn't even talk to him. We we couldn't. <laughs> he was our hero. I don't know why, but but we didn't. You know, and um, and then we waited around for a few weeks and then a few months waiting for that song to come out so that we you know, we could reap the glory, right? And it never came out. He never released it. And and we kept calling the office. No, Phil's off in New York. We don't know. He'll be back in two weeks. And we never could get an answer. So I know what it was um, because I played on a few other songs of his that never got released. There was one by the, the Ronettes. Right. There was a song by the Ronettes called A Paradise. And he liked the sound of my banjo in the background with all the guitars, you know, just going da 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 da. And I played on that song, and that never came out either. It was a beautiful song. He was pretty paranoid that if he put a song out and it didn't go right to number one, you know, there would go his reputation. So a year or two later, our song and the that Ronette song came out on an album in England called Rare Masters. And that was the first time we actually, you know, heard it on a record. By that time, a couple of the guys had moved back to Hawaii. We, we weren't together. Then we got together several other times over the years, you know, but uh, that was a funny, a funny time. Yeah, it was great. Great making a record with the great Phil Spector. He was quite a character.
and many of the photos in this book and in your other books, I think this follows up another Genesis Publications book, California Dreaming. Out of any photographer of that time, your photos embody the Laurel Canyon scene. And what was it that made Laurel Canyon special? And why do you think it, the, the scene kind of emerged in that area? Laurel Canyon, I mean, it wasn't a magical place. It was just a convenient place because it was right up the hill from Hollywood, from the Sunset Strip, where all the clubs and you know record companies were. Just five minutes up the hill and you were in the countryside, you know, and there were there were owls at night. You know, you'd park your car late at night. You'd hear, you know, up in the tree and there were coyotes and raccoons. I mean, you were in the country. And the reason was up in Laurel Canyon over the years, people had built little like summer cabins up there on the hillside. But there were no proper houses with yards. There were no yards for children to play. There were no sidewalks. They were just curvy hills, you know. If you go up to Laurel Canyon expecting to see something amazing, all you see are these curvy hills with cars parked on each side. You know, what? where's the magic, you know? The magic happened in, so single people lived up there, actors and musicians. And we all just drifted up there because it was the most convenient place nearby to, to rent a little a little place. So it was virtually almost all musicians and some actors living up there. And uh, and then every night we'd go down the hill to the Troubadour Club where we all got together almost every night. And uh, I would see David Crosby in there plenty, you know, almost every night. Yeah. And he was he was a fan of ours. I, I remember one time we were playing there and in the dressing room, he was saying, man, you're so lucky. You know, you get to sing harmony with your friends. And I said, well, David, don't worry. You know, you'll you'll get there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing. Oh, man, it was funny. And given that you were, you were friends with uh, the band members and you were there at the very start of Crosby, Stills, Nash, as they were forming they were singing together for the first time as well as in the recording studio and you've got some amazing shots of them in the studio in that early period and as well in this book you've got many of the people on the scene quotes from them you've got judy collins talking about judy blue eyes as well yeah yeah all the music yeah you know that the late 60s because you know i saw i photographed in 66 64 the beatles played ed sullivan's and that was kind of a turning point because all the folk groups wanted to, you know, wanted to see who are these guys. We've heard a lot about them. I've never really seen them before. I've heard a little bit on the radio, but I don't get it. We pulled into a motel that night on the road to watch the Ed Sullivan show. And our first reaction was, oh, look, they have an electric bass. You know, we had a stand up bass. So we'd carry on the airlines and carry in the van with us. And it was big and bulky. And so that by the next week, we had an electric bass and we electrified all our instruments. And that happened. And that's why the Buffalo Springfield got together. They were folk, those were folk musicians. Same thing with the birds. They were folk musicians. And, and we all were influenced by the Beatles. And the other thing was, in folk music, you never write a folk song. It's a hundred-year-old song, right? But here were the Beatles singing, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we're thinking, wow, what are we singing about the ox driver? You know, we could be singing, you know, something more fun and lively like they are. 
And that's when, I mean, it, it, it affected everybody. And that's all these musicians started writing their own music. It sort of became, I mean, it wasn't only because of the Beatles. Bob Dylan also in New York had written a, blue, a talking blues for Woody Guthrie because he really liked Woody Guthrie, you know. And um, I don't know, it was a renaissance and a flowering and a golden era of um, singer-songwriters. I mean, I, I've often said this, you maybe have read interviews of mine before, but I always say, hey, Frank Sinatra never wrote any songs. Elvis Presley never wrote any songs. They were songwriters and singers. But after, you know, the middle 60s, the singers were singing their own songs. They So when you could see someone like Joni Mitchell sing her own feeling, what's, what was in her heart and in her mind, which was considerable in her case, you know. And in each of these cases, the, cle the cleverest singers would start writing their own feelings about life and love. And it was way more interesting, you know, to hear somebody's... Uh, I mean, you take Jackson Brown. Wow, what a guy. I mean, it, the words to his songs and and the and the geez, the, he sings them like anthems, kind of. I mean, they're just so beautiful. They're so well said, you know. And it just makes it so much more amazing when a person sings their own story. And that's what happened. And that was a that was a big change, a sea change in the music industry. <laughs> Lock 
shots in this book as well given the connection going to Joni Mitchell's house to take uh, shots of Lady of the Canyon as well I mean, again a really natural pose you really yeah. put her at ease well yeah by that time I was working with a graphic artist Gary Burden and he's throughout that book too. he was a great guy and he you know I would take 500 pictures he would look through them overnight and pick out the one you know that was gonna be the cover he was so good at it and also, he was fun to hang out with, you know. He just was, he was a couple of years older than we were. He'd been, he just was interesting and um, a great personality. So that day, we were just going to Joni's house to take some publicity photos. And as we walked up the steps to her house, she was leaning out the window. And she said, hey, good morning, guys. And, and we stopped to talk. And Gary talked to her for about five minutes right there in the window. And that gave me the chance to take these pictures. So that's, you know, not having gone to photo school myself, I didn't, I didn't learn lighting. You know, I didn't, I never, I never shot in a studio. I wasn't interested in that. I mean, in fact, for me, it was, it was less about photography and and more about hanging out with your friends and, and just being there to, to watch what happens kind of, you know, just having access. And I was very curious about, I've always been curious about people. And when I was in college, before all this happened, I was studying psychology, not to be a psychologist, but to learn about people, how they act, why they act, what, you know, who are we? What are we supposed to do? What are we doing? You know, and I've always been really, really curious about people. I found out more recently that my Chinese animal is a tiger. And tigers like to hide in the bushes and watch the other animals. And that's exactly what I do, you know. I remember in those days, people would see me with a camera and say, oh, you're a photographer. Are you a professional? And I would say, no, no, not really. I just, you know, I just take pictures of my friends. I never really thought of myself as, uh, okay, I'm here to take the picture. It was more like, hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, and then when I just sit and watch and when it's interesting, I take the picture. I'm interested in documenting what really happens. I don't want to make it happen. Okay, you guys put on these funny hats and stand against that wall over there and look over here and smile. You know, that's not my style. I just like to look and observe. When it's interesting and it frames up nicely, I push the button. Hey, it's interesting you talk about being a people watcher. So from, from a musical perspective, 
adding Neil Young to Crosby, Stills, Nash was quite an interesting combination. And at times he would bring a bit more of a, a bite to the group, you know, like with yeah. Ohio. What was he like relating to the other the other three? Neil is always, I mean, all the times I've ever been with Neil, it's, it's always very kind of up and happy. You know, usually, I mean, he, he laughs a lot. I know he, he can be moody. All right. He is a Scorpio. Scorpio is a, quite a strong astrological sign. Joni Mitchell is a Scorpio, too. Generally, they know what they want. You know, they don't suffer fools lightly and they don't, you know, they either like it or they don't like it. There's no in between. And so he was very definite in what he wanted to do. But he was he laughed. He was funny. You know, he really laughed a lot. I I always have to say, you know, uh, all of us back then in the 60s, we're having a little toke of God's herb. You know, it was a way of life. I mean, face it. Years later, we have a gallery called the Morrison Hotel Gallery where we sell all these pictures. And one day I was standing in there. In the early days, it was only my pictures, 100 pictures on the wall. And a guy, you know, walked in. He said, did you ever smoke grass with any of these people? And I looked around the room and I said, <laughs> every single one, you know except for Donny Osmond, you know, <laughs> and maybe Michael Jackson, you know, his brothers probably smoked it, but he didn't. But we all, I don't know, it was left over from the jazz days. It wasn't a big deal, but it was kind of a way of life. And the thing is that smoking a little bit of those flowers, just kind of, it raises your attention, you know, your interest in things. It, it accelerates your senses a little bit, you know, it heightens your senses, right? you want to reach for your guitar or, you know, it just makes the day a little bit brighter. By golly, it does. You know, when you get into the man-made powders, those, those are very bad.
talking about uh, grass and whatever, the photo of uh, David Crosby and the, the American flag as the, yeah. as the gun and everything, that's right. iconic. How did that happen? Well, that was their first gig out of town, their first, you know, traveling uh, trip. They went to from L.A. to Minnesota, Minneapolis. And we were staying in a hotel there and they were going to do their first concert together uh, away from L.A. And I was in David's room talking to him. And of course, he was sitting on the bed smoking a joint like always. And in fact, he was talking on the phone to Bob Dylan. (laughs) And I thought, wow, that's so great, you know, and he was smoking a little and Graham Nash opened the door and said, hey, Cross, a fan made this for you and threw this flag gun on the bed. It was a like a little pillow, a stuffed American flag in the shape of a pistol. And David was sitting there with the joint and he just reached down, picked up the flag gun and put it to his head and took a little toke. And I went click. (laughs) So, I mean, it looks like maybe, you know, I mean, you might think, hey, we've got a great idea. Now we want you to sit there and we want you to hold this and pretend you're smoking a joint. No, no, no. None of it's ever, ever staged. You know, it's just real life. That was I like that moment. <laughs> and you continue to chronicle uh, the band members, Crosby, Stills and Nash over the over the years, including mm-hmm. in the late 90s for the Looking Forward album. And they were recording the uh, the Neil Young song Slowpoke as well in, in that era. How did the dynamic between them change over the years as, as we get more nearer to the present day? Well, you know, in the beginning, there were the three of them who who were who loved singing together, they would hit that three-part harmony and it was heaven, you know, to them and to the listeners. And so they were, they loved the harmony they made and they were really very excited about it. You know, three boys that were, you know, doing this thing and and pretty knocked out, you know, that they could do it. And then I guess for the second album, maybe their manager or the record company or what said, you know, we need a little more maybe ass in the music, you know, and and Stephen had always he loved playing with Neil Young in the Buffalo Springfield because they had this rivalry. One guy would play a line on the guitar and then the next guy would have to answer that a little bit better, you know, and they would go back and forth that way. And Stephen, I think, missed that. And, and Neil was his friend. And they said, let's get Neil in the group. So Neil was kind of a maverick, you know, guy. He he I mean, he came with his own songs and then they would sing sing harmony on his songs. So it was like a, a two-part thing. I mean, there was the three of them and the songs that they all wrote, and then Neil and his songs. And so it encompassed a, a couple of worlds there. And Neil, you know, Neil was great. I mean, I, you know, whenever I was with him, he, he always was laughing and having a good time. I was usually with a group of people. I'd been up to his ranch a few times and, and stayed over there for a weekend. And and he was very gracious, very fun-loving, you know, very open and, uh, you know, up for anything funny or, I mean, really, and I'd be up there with Gary Burden, who was a really good friend of his. So maybe that's why it was always so upbeat, you know, but, but I know sometimes he would get a a notion in his head, like, you know, he wouldn't want to go on the road and he'd just leave. And they, they, you know, they couldn't stand that. So like I say, you know, he, he wasn't moody, but I mean, a Scorpio, they say, well, I, you know, I don't want to do that. Or I, or I do want to do that. And a couple of times he said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And he would just leave. But luckily they had that core group of the three of them was, they could do any concert with the three of them, but he was that way with the Buffalo Springfield as well. He would come and go, you know, he didn't sort of owe any allegiance to anybody. He was his own man. You know, that was the thing, but that's what makes Neil Neil. <laughs> 
across your photos with them one of the most iconic photos is them on the couch for the album cover and it's it's just amazing how you'd see a brilliant opportunity for a fantastic photo and you'd capture them in the right moment and then it would become iconic yeah well let me see i'm just gonna take a picture of us (laughs) okay we were actually taking publicity photos they were in the middle of recording their first album And they didn't have uh, even any photos. And at that time, you know, we all belong to a kind of a club. Musicians all belong to a club. They're all very close-knit. If you meet a musician and you're a musician, you're brothers, you know. And not only that, but Lookout Management, which became Geffen Roberts, was a big management company with Elliot Roberts and David Geffen. And they managed Neil and Joni and CSN and America and the Eagles and you know, so much, Joe Walsh, Dan Fogelberg. I mean, 
they managed most everybody. And we, we were a part of that group. We'd be down there at the office every day, you know, using the phone to make a call, flirting with the secretaries, smoking a joint, you know, and, and it was a way of life. And so we photographed all those people. We just sort of became the in-house group that did the publicity and album covers. Well, there were no photos of them performing or no, and they don't eat, didn't have a, have a photo to put in Billboard to announce that they were recording. So we went out one afternoon in Gary Burden's old Ford station wagon, and we drove around West Hollywood and we jumped out a few places to take photos. Graham had seen an old house with a couch out in front of it, and we we finally found it up a side street. He said, there it is. So we had, and everyone jumped out and jumped on the couch. And uh, the same thing happened. It always happened with Gary and I as a team. I would get up close and I was just framing the couch. The couch was a perfect rectangle, you know, and the, and that was the that was the frame that I used. And so I had the couch perfectly framed up close. And then Gary Burden said what he always said to me, back up, back up. Get the whole house, you know. So evidently, he, as a graphic artist, he could he had an idea to maybe use the whole house in a photo. And then we had a what what we do then is develop the film and have a slideshow and look at the pictures. Well, that happened, and everyone liked that picture. They said, "Wow, I mean, that would make a great album cover." But in the time, the couple of days that you were developing the film, we decided to call ourselves Crosby, Sills, Nash. And we're backwards in that picture because they weren't named that yet, you know? <laughs> and I remember people talking about, well, we could flip the picture over. Then it would be Crosby, Silver, Nash, but Stephen would be playing the guitar backwards. And so I remember saying, let's just go back. Let's just drive back to the house, jump on, the, jump on that couch in the right order. It'll take five minutes. So we all got in Gary's Ford station wagon and drove there and there was no house. The house wow. was gone. It was a vacant lot. And uh, it was right around the time Joni Mitchell wrote that song, Paved Paradise, put up a parking lot. That's exactly what happened. So they used it that way. But it wasn't planned. You know, that day we weren't out to seek an album cover. A lot of times that happens, you know, it just you're just taking photos and then you get a good one and they say, wow, we could use that. I light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you brought today. I'm for John too. Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to
talking about listening again to some of the Crosby Stills Nash songs yeah. like Helplessly Hoping for example and oh, 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 yeah. the lyrics really hitting home to you yeah. even though they you know they go back 50 years part of the magic of the group is that the songs are as special now as they were back then yeah because I say that song Helplessly Hoping I've heard it what 200 you know 300 times I mean every time they ever play I mean I've and I, you know, I knew it was helplessly hoping something, something, I, you know, yet I don't, sometimes, you know, I would go to a Neil Young concert and shoot photos and a friend would say, wow, you went to Neil Young concert. What songs did he do? And I said, well, I don't know. He did all those Neil Young songs. I was watching. I wasn't listening. You know, of course I'm listening, but I'm really concentrating on the, on the visual part of it. And, and, you know, I don't sing along with it, but so I was, of course, aware of all of their music, but I couldn't sit down and sing a whole song, you know. And then about a year, a couple of years ago, right in the middle of the pandemic on YouTube, I don't know how I heard about it, but there was an Italian a cappella group that recorded Helplessly Hoping. And you would look at that and on the screen would be a little Italian girl and she would go, Helplessly Hoping for Arlequin over nearby you know and it was wow it was just so touching you know and then another, a second voice would come in and a second girl and then someone else someone else until there's 20 people singing that song it grew and grew and grew it was just a beautiful choir singing and that's when i really listened to the words you know and said this is this is an amazing song i mean i knew he'd written it for for judy collins but the idea that Helplessly hoping her Harlequin, which would be him, Stephen, hovers nearby, awaiting a sound, a sign, something like that. Waiting, waiting for Judy to notice him. You know, the whole song is about that. He's just hovering around, hoping she'll say something to him. And oh man, it's it's heartfelt. It's beautiful. That's it gave it the song a new life for me. That's for sure. It's become a big deal. I have a Friday night dinner party with people who who love that song. And after dinner, we put that on the computer and we all sing along to it. <laughs> Helplessly hoping. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I hope those guys are just getting famous as hell because, yeah. God, they were great, you know. But it's like one of those Zoom things, you know, where there's 20 little faces on the screen. I don't know if they're a proper group. I don't know what they're doing. I, you look on YouTube and there's 20 versions of Helplessly Hoping, but then you put in Il Coro Nonche, I-L-C-O-R-O-N-O-N-O-N-C-H-E. It doesn't mean Helplessly Hoping. It means the heart doesn't know or something like that. Il Coro Nonche. God, it was a major event, you know, to see that. So, um, yeah, I mean, over the years, gosh, you know, I've been around those guys in, in, in singles and duos and groups. And I mean, I spent 
half a year in England living at Stephen Sills' house in, in Elstead, Surrey, you know, and 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 that we did his um well, we took a lot of photos there. We did his second album cover there. And once again, I've never taken a picture of Stephen for an album cover. You know, we were in Colorado and it snowed one night and he wanted a picture of him out singing in the snow. And I took a picture and a year later it got used for an album cover. And then we were in England and we wanted to go to Paris to see Steve McQueen was doing a racing car movie. And Stephen wanted to go there. We never did find him because the crew had moved on to somewhere else. But we got on, a, in the, on the ferry. We rented a, a stretch Mercedes limousine to drive to Paris. We weren't supposed to take it out of the country, but we got right on a ferry boat. We sat down in the, the coffee bar on the ferry and Stephen was sitting across from me and I raised my camera to take a picture and he turned his head and looked out the window. And I took the picture anyway, and that became the album cover of his second album a year later. <laughs> it happened that way often. On that period when you were over here in the UK, Mick Jagger coming over, Peter Sellers, as well as uh, Stephen's love of yeah. horses. I, I didn't know any of that. He loved horses. And he, you know, this home, he was living in a house that Peter Sellers had lived in. And, um, and then he'd sold it to Ringo Starr. And I guess he'd sold it or leased it or rented it to Stephen Stills. And there was a stable, but no horses. So one day we drove off. He'd gotten the name of an Irish horse trainer guy. And we went to his farm there, you know, near us. And uh, there was a big steeplechase horse named Major. And that's the horse Stephen wanted. But Major had a little pal who was a little spotted pony, was his friend, and the Irish guy said, well, you can't just take him. You got to have the little horse, too. And the horse's name was Crazy Horse. <laughs> or Stephen named him Crazy Horse, I think, right away. And so he'd go out there and ride every day. Yeah, he loves horses. Yeah, was... <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Henry. I have to say the Genesis publication book, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, love the one you with. If you've even got a passing fondness for CSNY, this is an essential book and a perfect accompaniment to listen to all that wonderful material. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jason. Pleasure talking to you. Peace and love. Peace and love. <laughs> See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Helplessly opening air like an overs nearby awaiting a world Gasping a glimpses of gentle true spirit He runs, wishing he could fly I Only to trip at the sound of goodbye Worldlessly watching he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside Heartlessly helping himself To her batteries he worries Did he hear a goodbye? I, or even Hello
listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.